Welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. I'm Gabe BC, your host. You can always find us at State of the Art on Instagram or Twitter. If you haven't heard last week's episode with Lauren McCarthy, go back and give that one a listen. That's really interesting. And we talk about Lauren's work and uh, she has a piece called Lauren, where she actually is acting as a virtual assistant inside of your own house, watching you 24 hours a day. So there's something interesting about that, especially now when we're all staying inside during the coronavirus. Uh, It's been a strange time, right? Especially in New York. This is the, the beginning sort of a summer season here, finally. And it's getting warm. And, you know, I walked by the park the other day. I went outside for, you know, a little while for a walk. And the park was full of people, some of them not wearing masks. And you got to wonder where these people are getting their information from sometimes. Uh, I have terrible allergies right now. So if I sound different, that's why. Uh, It's also, it makes it interesting to walk around because I'm trying not to sneeze in my mask. But uh, that's also kind of gross and exciting at the same time. so this week we have a really great artist joining us. Uh, Addie Wagonect is our, our guest. Addie makes really compelling, interesting performances, sculptures made with drones, with Roombas, uh, that really kind of examines our changing relationship to technology uh, and how we kind of portray different identities through technology. Uh, so this is a really great episode, um, and we tell some fun, embarrassing stories at the end of it. So uh, without any further ado... Addy Wagenecht, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so I guess let's start off by talking about your work. How did you? How would you describe it to somebody who's never sort of seen it before? What are some themes that you explore uh, in, in a lot of your different pieces? A lot of my work looks sort of about around the, I would say, the humanization of technology, meaning that um, how we relate to technology, either on a one-to-one level with our own devices or how we relate to others via technology. And how did that interest emerge in technology? Have you always been sort of experimenting with tech since you were a kid or did it come at a certain moment in your life? Yeah, I mean, my my love of kind of computers as a medium, I guess, started pretty young. Um, I was using like Mac Paint and Kid Picks and sort of that sort of genre of like Macintosh stuff when I was younger. And then as I grew up, um, it was computer games. And then I started just kind of studying code as like a medium for expression and kind of thinking about how to use the devices around us that we're constantly inundated with anyways, a sort of arc, um, not archetypical, but like, I guess I could say artistic and creative objects. Hmm. So like our daily adv- devices, basically? Yeah, exactly. And does so things like um, iPhones and uh your vacuums and Roombas and how um, we may or may not use like Zoom, for example, a lot right now and sort of just whatever it is that I'm infatuated with or I feel that people are really focusing on right now is something I tend to draw from. Do you start with the item or the tool in mind or do you think about sort of that? Does the idea come first and you kind of find the tool that fits that idea? Um, It's kind of both. I mean, it's not necessarily one or the other. Like, for example, with my most recent solo show, I did a bunch of paintings that were done with Roombas, um, kind of navigating my body on large scale canvases. And that started sort of two ways. One was um, I was in Paris and I went to I think it was Pompidou or maybe it was Palace to Tokyo. But I, I saw a piece of Eve Klein's that was this blue series where he's using um, women's bodies as paintbrushes. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was sort of an interesting interpretation of um, both the body and uh, painting. 
And somewhere around there, uh, Roombas became very popular. And um, there was this like meme, or maybe it was like a BuzzFeed article where um, they were showing all these people who had Roombas and the Roombas had like ran over their dog's poop. And, and in, <laughs> in this like hilarious way, I thought it was amazing. But it also like immediately I saw how it visualized the algorithms within the spaces. And I started like researching um, dog poop incidences with Roombas online. And I saw all these really fascinating ways, like basically the algorithm that's normally invisible is actually like physically drawn <laughs> with the feces of the animal. Right. And um, that kind of was this weird like mashup mix up moment of me thinking about how women are uh, kind of how women are represented historically and contemporary to some extent within painting, but then also um, what that might look like um, if we were to kind of renegotiate it uh, to contemporary terms. And so when you say it was a representation of your body specifically, mm -hmm. how, how did that come into play in terms of these paintings? Um, I was thinking a lot about the privileges of stillness. So like, for example, in a domestic setting, <clears throat> who has sort of the privileges of relaxing on the weekends and who has the privileges of like typically not doing the housework or who has the privileges of like stillness in the sense of not doing the sort of invisible labor. And it was sort of looking at the dichotomy of like the more traditional male female relationships where like the woman is typically cooking and cleaning and kind of doing this nonstop motion through the day. And I thought about, so as a woman, um, how do I find like the luxury of stillness? And how would I do that while still being productive in the traditional like economic sense? Mm. Um, so for me, it was about not putting that labor on other people, but it was um, how do I, you know, use devices and technology to actually kind of transfer my need for production or labor into some other um, medium, I guess. And so the Roomba, in a way, is it, it taking over your labor so that you can have this moment of stillness. Exactly. And so when I painted those pieces, I would basically, it, it was sort of a response to Eve Klein's work and the fact that when you watch the documentation of his works, it's um, women who are naked or nude um, being covered in this blue paint and then pressing themselves actively um, onto these canvases, usually in front of an audience, but not always. And at the same time, um, it was interesting to sort of think, okay, well, so if I take that idea, but it was something that I did in a contemporary space and I removed sort of the male artist and it became a female artist, like who, who, what would replace or who would replace those female bodies in the work? Um, and then I played a lot with the hardware of the Roombas to kind of play with paint viscosities and trying to get a sense of, um, I guess I had this preconceived notion of I wanted it to reference the Eve Klein's work without actually being a one-on-one -on -one, um, repl replication, obviously. So um, I started playing with like the paint viscosity. I started playing with different sorts of paints. And then I started actually researching the blue itself um, because he apparently owned this blue as a proprietary blue. And so I started being fascinated then by this idea of like, well, can you own a color? Or like, who thinks they can own a color, honestly? Right. <laughs> so then I got really disgusted by that. And it was like, how can I get this color? <laughs> well, it's also bizarre that he he created this color, owned it, and then used women's bodies to paint with the color that he created, right? There's something very right. Uh, right. Um, lascivious about that. Right. And I mean, contemporary artists today, like, use assistants all the time. I mean, it's, like, quite well-known that, like, Jeff Koons and many other, like, well-established contemporary artists have, like, this drove factory of other anonymous artists creating their work. And they very often 
don't touch the work itself. So it's sort of like, how do you remove the artist's hand in a way that's always been done, especially by like these white male artists, but how do you do that being not in that space of privilege and kind of using your privilege without sort of having to abuse other people. And so, yeah, that they all rolled into one thing. And so that's how a lot of my work works is it's like, well, okay, I'm interested in this. Okay. The blue is interesting. How do I get the blue? And then I fall down this research hole of like, LARPing and all these weird like <laughs> sub you know cultures to figure out who owns the blue and where can I get it and sort of you know all these different trajectories kind of form eventually a body of work and well sometimes they do and sometimes they don't but <laughs> eventually they create something whether I keep it or not is another question do you see in the case of this piece the Roomba sort of as an extension of you of your body or is it a device that's uh removed from you in some way like do do these uh, stand-ins become part of you in some way when you're creating the work? Um, I think unintentionally. I mean, I kind of meant to have the Roombas be these devices that created the work, and that was like the end of the story. Mm-hmm. But as I've used them more and more in the last few years with other kind of series and works, I find that they have personalities. <laughs> yeah. Like some run only one certain type of algorithm and others run like three or four different kinds of algorithms. And I'm sort of aware of which ones create which aesthetics and sort of um, that collaboration, I think, is interesting because I use certain Roombas, even though they're all the same models and makes. I use them for certain types of aesthetics or, or certain types of algorithms because I know which ones like typically perform one algorithm over the other. Um, when Maybe we can talk about um, the Internet of Things, which also incorporates <laughs> yeah. Roombas in, in a different way, though, right? How are yeah. Roombas being used yeah. in this piece? Um, so that was a piece that was commissioned by MU in the Netherlands, and it was sort of a parody and play off of office culture and um, using Roombas as sort of something that takes this idea that it's supposed to optimize our lives and make it easier. But when I found and talked to people, so I don't actually own Roombas in the traditional sense of like for vacuums. I, I use them for everything else but vacuums. <laughs> uh, but my friends that have had them for vacuums, I, I would always ask them, you know, do you use them? Do you like them? Do they work? Should I get one? And ultimately, um, they would all have one. And within like a month or two, they'd say, well, no, it's it's way more work than it is worth. Like I end mm. up just cleaning the filters all the time. It's throwing itself off of the stairs, it's getting stuck in places, it's not smart enough to kind of actually do what it's supposed to do. And it, it ends up creating more work than less. And so I wanted to sort of take that idea and take this idea of like optimizing our lifestyles. Um, and so on different Roombas, I have a room full of like 10 or 20 of them. And each one has sort of these nodes to office culture, be it like Soylent or um, a thing of orchids or a pizza box or a a five liter Starbucks coffee box and sort of it, they travel around the space um, sort of giving offerings to people, but at the same time embedded in them are different devices. So some of them have uh, Wi-Fi jammers, which or signal jammers, which jam um, like the LTE signals on your phone or your Wi-Fi um, signal, depending on which one it is. Hmm. Some of them had um, Tor exit nodes. So they basically would, um autonomize anonymize sorry (laughs) anonymize your uh traffic uh coming through your phone or coming out of your phone instead of um traditionally like that information is pretty trackable and then sometimes it would have like a signal um 
an additional antenna or something that would actually elevate the signal and make it stronger and faster. And so sort of depending on which Roombas would interact with each other, there would be different experiences. So it's like, would the Wi-Fi jammer override um, the exit node? Would the exit node over, override the um, you know strengthening devices? And so sort of like that interesting dichotomy was at play as well as like, depending on which Roomba was near you, you might have no signal in the gallery. You might have a really good signal or you might suddenly get this notice that you're like, your um, traffic is encrypted and you have no idea why. So it was sort of like playing with the space as much as it was playing with who was in the space. Hmm. And, and but, uh, uh, so when I walk into the space though, I see all these Roombas carrying different objects, right? Like I would see yeah. a Roomba with an orchid, yeah. but there's this yeah. hidden layer of devious behavior about these Roombas. Is that exactly. how you describe it? Exactly. So, and some of them would have like green juices and people would actually, you know, we replace them once in a while. So people would like take one of the green juices and like, oh, okay, cool. Free juice, whatever. <laughs> right. Not realizing. Um, and then sometimes people, you know, the Roombas would get stuck in corners and it was interesting, like to see if people would help them or not, you know, move them so that they could actually keep navigating. Some would go out of the gallery. Like when it was really sunny, they had the doors open and one of them just like went out onto the street. <laughs> oh no. People are chasing it down. So it's like really, it's really interesting kind of the subtle humor of those devices and how we maybe anthropomorphize them and sort of humanize them in a way. Um, I find myself doing that, like I talked about earlier already, but to see that like so instantly happening with people in the gallery was quite um, entertaining. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. Were there any legal issues with creating a project where you're jamming people's cell phones within the gallery? Um, Not in the eu and not in the us but it was shown um let me see how can i say this vaguely it was shown in a country it was shown in china um at a museum for a exhibition and um they weren't able to import the devices in any way because Mm -hmm. they didn't want to risk that issue so their workaround was like to get someone in shenzhen to basically or actually the workaround was for me to get someone in Shenzhen who happened to be alumni of my graduate program to get me a Wi-Fi jammer, um, follow my build instructions, and then deliver it to the museum by hand because they didn't want to risk the issues of what might happen if it was discovered to actually be um, within the device, even though it was for a creative um, exhibition at like a very um, established space. Because <laughs> hmm. they thought it would be for something else, basically. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's this whole interesting situation with China, like for the last few years, having work shown there where everything has to go through this kind of, I forget exactly what it's called, but it's like a department of culture. And basically you have to send them all these images of the works. You have to send the exact images of the works that are being sent. You have to send an exact description of what the works are about and an exact description of what's in the works. And they have to pre-approve that before you can even ship it to the country. Or it risks being sent, it kind of risks being either held or returned completely um, in a way that they they never get the work to the museum. So it's always something you have to be very aware of, depending on where you're showing things. Hmm, that's interesting. Have you had works rejected because of this cultural board? Um, I have not, um, because they we found ways to work around that um, because they knew that those the Internet of Things and those Roombas and having jammers and Tor exit nodes and all that stuff would be a problem. Uh, but there was works, I think it was Heather Dewey Hashberg, who's another artist. She had, her pieces were just straight out denied by the really? board. Um, and her entire work was pulled for the exhibition, um, which was 
horrible because she had already planned on getting there and being there for the openings and giving artist talks. And they just basically were like, we, we refuse to show this work in the country. Um, we won't let you show it at this museum. And so it's really kind of starts to make you realize how much you take for granted, I think, as an American and like being able to have free speech and having, um, you know, the amendments that we do is really uh I think important to the kind of work that you want to make as an artist. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've also had some very bizarre encounters with airport security while trying to bring <laughs> works yeah. around the world. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. no, this is an artwork. And they're like, why are you putting a bunch of people's DNA in uh, packages and taking it with you? Um, <laughs> let's talk about yeah. your other piece. Uh, you, have a, you made a piece called Asymmetric Love, which is, I guess it appears as sort of a chandelier composed entirely of surveillance cameras. Uh, why did right. you title it Asymmetric Love? Um, well, it's about the asymmetry of the situation. So when the piece is hanging, it's like there's one person that has the power of um, observation, while the people who are on the other side of that don't have the equal power. Um, it was also sort of a note to, I think, everything going on at the time. That piece was made right about prior or right after, and I don't remember which, um, Snow the whole Snowden revelations happened, and this whole kind of, I think on a larger social level, this realization that like a lot of what ha happens in the U S isn't as good as a lot of us had believed. Um, and sort of, I guess, second guessing that, but also seeing how much of surveillance was already ubiquitous in the culture. I mean, almost 10 years ago now it was like, okay, so surveillance is everywhere. There's dragnet surveillance. All of our information is being captured and nobody cares. And sort of that, implication to me was startling it's like it's sort of how i would equate like a smoke detector you know it's the thing that's interesting about a smoke detector is not that it detects smoke it's that it detects like when it's socially kind of accepted to react to the smoke mm. i don't know if you've ever been in a space where um like there's smoke and nobody's going you know nobody's panicking because smoke detector hasn't gone off but then it's like the second it goes off people feel like they have the right to sort of react or leave the space right. and i think the machine has told make, us it's dangerous now right that's why exactly it's like okay it's dangerous and i think if you make the right sort of art that's sort of ultimately what it needs to be it's like this um it's this alarm right where it's like okay it's socially now it's like part of the zeitgeist and it's socially acceptable to start thinking about this and responding. And and there was some frustration I had because when the Snowden stuff came out, everyone around me at the time was like, why does this matter? You know, we love our president. We're all like, it's great. We have this whole Obama people. Everyone's nice. We love each other. And now I think only in the last two or three years, a lot of those people who were saying, like, I don't have anything to hide. There's nothing wrong. I don't have to worry about the government. Suddenly that's starting to like flip. And that narrative of okay, maybe I don't want these people watching me, maybe I don't trust these people, has started to hit um, Americans especially. Mm -hmm. And sort of for me, it was very much this frustration of like, look at how much surveillance is going on, look at how much information they're capturing and nobody cares and nobody seems to think it's important because it's like maybe your threat model is in Russia, it's your boyfriend, but it's still like something you need to be thinking about. <laughs> and so is that why you present it as this luxury item, the chandelier? Um, I mean, I, I specifically, that work was specifically created for a exhibition at Museums Quartier in Vienna. Um, there was a curator there who was doing an exhibition called Faceless that was looking at anonymity and anonymity in culture. So it was sort of, um, 
it was commissioned for that exhibition and it specifically had to be something that was hanging um, in a hallway. Like those were the constraints. It was like, it needs to be about anonymity or lack of anonymity and it needs to be hanging. So it was like living in Europe was quite interesting because I was surrounded by all this like very iconic Baroque chandeliers and all this iconic, like beautiful, everything's gold leafed and sort of, um, I think that form factor was really striking to me because everyone recognizes the form factor of a chandelier. And it was like, how do you make a chandelier, but like make it for contemporary spaces outside of like the crystals and the ballrooms and sort of all the stuff that I think is, is part of maybe not inundated in European culture, but it's definitely relates to European culture. <laughs> and is it a functional uh, surveillance camera as well? I mean, are, are they all functioning all these cameras that are part of the chandelier? Yeah. So, um, so some of this, let's see. So there's three editions. Two of them are not functioning. One of them is functioning. And that was like at the request of the collector who acquired it. He wanted it to be functional within um, the space of his collection so that you could actually view the feed in real time because um, it's 360 degrees. Like they go all the way around. And so each of those cameras then would be like a complete view of the space in which it was being exhibited or displayed. And how do people react to this piece? I mean, it almost encourages you to take photos of it from what I've seen because it's so beautiful. But at the same time, that's kind of making a comment itself. Yeah, I mean, uh, at the time, people thought it was kind of cute and gimmicky and they'd see it in the hall and some people would react and some people wouldn't. It was quite interesting to watch um, in the museum, people like walking under it and not even realizing that that's what it was because peripherally the form reads as a chandelier. So you only necessarily see the cameras when you look at it. Um, And then more recently it's been interesting because in the last, uh, I don't know, maybe since the whole COVID thing has hit, there's been a lot of people posting it on social media that say, oh my God, this is like exactly what's going on right now. Like we're all stuck in home at work while being watched, we're all being monitored. Um, I can't believe this it like I can't believe this person just made this and I would say like okay actually no it was made like eight or nine years ago but <laughs> it's still timely unfortunately <laughs> yeah how has COVID you think changed our perception of surveillance you know people talk about the idea of tracking people who have had the virus now do you think we're right. becoming more comfortable with surveillance now or do we have a, a changing relationship with surveillance because of this uh, pandemic I don't you know it's really hard to gauge like I have such a I have such a spectrum of friends. I have friends who are very hardcore. Like everything has to be encrypted. Every channel we communicate in has to be encrypted. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to answer if you call me like unencrypted, you know, all these things. And then I have friends who are like, they don't care about any of that stuff. I think it's a complete overreaction until something happens to them. Like they start getting doxxed or they start getting harassed online. And then suddenly it's like the messages start showing, Oh my God, Addy, what do I do? Like, tell me what to do. How do I make this secure? I don't want to get hacked or calling my parents. You know, suddenly it's like, then it becomes a threat model. And I think that's unfortunately quite common is people don't necessarily care about any of this stuff until it affects them. And so to have an awareness greater than yourself, I think requires some sort of um, maturity. It's sort of like masks. I mean, there's a whole divide about if people should be wearing masks or not right now. And some people are like, everyone needs a mask and other people think it's completely unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of about the individual versus the community, right? So looking at like that on a case by case, like threat model basis, I guess, is what I hope people are starting to do. But I'm still not convinced that we're there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We kind of hope that it'll be our savior and also our curse at the same time from what I've seen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, You tell me a little bit about Deep Lab. Because mm-hmm. Deep Lab seems like a way for people to have these sort of conversations. 
How did it come about in the first place? Um, Deep Lab came about because I um, had done, so I had done that chandelier piece as sort of a one-off piece um, for this exhibition and because I was definitely not going to be an artist. And then um, about a year later, Wait, wait you were definitely not going to be an artist? Is that what you said? I was definitely not going to be an artist. Yeah, <laughs> Why is that? That's Because I didn't, I just don't think, I didn't think at the time that that was like a feasible, realistic profession <laughs> yeah sometimes i still wonder about that myself but um <laughs> i mean it comes and goes in waves i'm yeah. sure for everybody all my friends no matter how established they are it's always like a, you're always second guessing this but um so i had made that piece and then um i was in somewhere i think i was in france i don't know why i'm always in paris when these things happen i was in paris <laughs> and uh golan levin reached out to me and he said uh i just got this amazing warhol grant to invite a certain, I don't remember if it was two or three artists, but it was some number of people to create a work specifically around surveillance. And I'm really, I saw this piece you did. Is there something you could do? Here's the X, you know, X amount of budget we have. Like, can you come to Carnegie Mellon and could you propose a few things to me and kind of like make something interesting with this? Um, so I thought about um, drones that react like bees. I thought mm. about um robotic arms i was trying to look at sort of like what might be interesting as art and then i started at the same time i was coming out of a collaborative group called fat lab which was the free art and technology lab um and it was kind of starting to disband or we were talking about disbanding i don't remember exactly because everything's blurry at this point mm -hmm. but um it was a group of 20 so dudes and two women. And I started to think about, okay, I loved fat. I love the collaborative, but I wonder what it would be like to have something like that, but with women or like, you know, the quote unquote others. And so um, I went back to Golan and I said, okay, this is my idea. Like I've been going to all these hacker conferences. I've been going to all these hacker spaces and workshops. And it's like, there's these amazing people doing amazing work, but they don't have the visibility that like everyone else who's Pirate Bay or Napster or Kim.com or whoever like has. And how can, how, what do you think about sort of the idea of like bringing in, you know, 10 or 15, like really badass people um, who are mostly women and like doing something interesting with it? Send. <laughs> <laughs> and go on. It's like, okay, sounds good. <laughs> He's like, wow, this is not like, you know, he's like, I haven't thought about this being art, but like, this is really like, this is actually like way more interesting, you know, in a way like this is what's the most impactful thing you can do is like bringing other people together who you can elevate, like beyond the way you could elevate yourself, right? So we were like, we started researching people and then we started getting names from them of other people they recommended. And it was interesting because when we all came together, I think only one or two of them I had met like in real life, everyone else was people I just knew from online or from their research or from their GitHubs or whatever. And so it was really um, incredibly nerve wracking, but also incredibly exciting to kind of like come into the space and have no idea what's going to happen and just like hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> what are some of the projects that emerged from Deep Lab from these um, meetings? So uh, the initial kind of projects we did there was we did a ton of lectures um, and public outreach at Carnegie Mellon itself. And then we did uh, like a 250 page book that was sort of on surveillance and data visualization and data sets. And I think at the time, oddly, when we were all there, it was when the 
torture reports had come out. So there were like hundreds of pages of really intense, like we, we all had really intense dreams that way because we were all reading it. Um, that came out, there was, um, and then since then it sort of started versioning. Like we did another one at New Museum in New York where we did a lot of public outreach. Like we did um, kind of learn tour in less than 10 minutes, learn PGP in under five minutes, like learn signal, uh, learn, um, you know, basic like information operation security stuff to people that weren't necessarily fluent or knowledgeable about those things and sort of like empowering uh, communities who are on the outskirts of Manhattan and trying to bring in people who wouldn't necessarily come into museum to sort of um, give them the opportunity to understand things that will affect them maybe more than it would affect like the really wealthy people that typically come to those things. Mm -hmm. And then we've done other things like um, Jillian York and I did a talk at uh, Republic on Berlin where we were talking about um, tit censorship on Facebook. And a lot of the women are sort of always doing lectures everywhere and workshops everywhere. Um, last year, we did a really large installation around immigration and migration um, at the York Biennale in uh, the UK because uh, one of, well, actually, all of us at that. Um, particular residency because the group is sort of always changing depending on the location and who can get a visa and who who's allowed to go there and what bans are in place, which is a whole nother <laughs> conversation. Mm -hmm. But um, one of them had come from Iran, one of them come from Behran, uh, one of them was from Nigeria, I had come from America, and we were all sort of there as like immigrants. And so we started talking about our experiences um, migrating or living um, in these other countries, but all all sort of being others and what that experience was like from for me coming like from a very um like white western rich country from one of them coming from like a very poor african country one of them coming from like, the middle east in a very rich area one of them coming from in the middle east in a very poor area. and it was really um enlightening but at the same time there was a whole immigration crisis going on so it was like you know, all these people that are coming in, there's numbers, but none of them have names. And we started looking at all these documentation that had leaked, I think, to The Guardian, possibly, or maybe it was WikiLeaks, um, about all the documentation that's been done by the European Union when people are found dead. And it would be like their approximate age, a number, like to, to, to identify them instead of a name. And right. then they're like a cause for death. And so we started looking at those and we created a really large, like, um, 14 hour kind of performance based on that data set. And so that was like a more recent thing we've done. What happened and in that performance? Um, it was interesting, like people, some people would come up and sit for a while and listen. Other people um, were bringing like kind of memoriam things. It would mm. be flowers or um, like stuffed animals or things that you would bring to sort of maybe a funeral or a gravestone. Um, and leaving them at the performance while it was happening. Other people uh, would cry. I mean, it was sort of an interesting gauntlet to see the reactions because it was a, such a wealthy, rich area and nobody had the awareness. I think neither did we, for that matter, have the awareness of like how horrible some of these people had, like ex what they had experienced to try to get to somewhere better mm -hmm. that didn't really want them in the end, you know? Yeah, And sort of that was really intense for all of us. Are there current projects uh, that you're working on with Deep Lab? Is it still active currently? Yeah, so we communicate. There's quite a few members who are in the UK, and we've been communicating quite a bit. Unfortunately, like in the last 
year or so with the travel bans that have happened in the U.S., like specifically around Muslim countries, a lot of the very active members haven't been, I should say they're not allowed to go to the U.S., so we've been really restricted in terms of accepting grants or fellowships or residencies in the U.S. because of that. Um, And we've been doing sort of more like, I guess we've been doing sort of more workshops and that sort of thing. I started doing um, these OPSEC InfoSec videos for the Mozilla Foundation um, that were kind of based off of the workshops that we've done with Deep Lab. So it was like um, they're beauty, they're beauty blogger videos. But when you start listening to them, you realize that I'm like teaching you about um, burner phones. I'm <laughs> teaching you about PGP. I'm teaching you about threat modeling. Um, sort of looking at like. I would say kind of beginner intermediate information operation security stuff that people typically feel overwhelmed about and don't necessarily find a lot of good information online about. Um, and I wanted to do it in sort of a subversive way that would reach an audience that may not otherwise seek it out. Um, so because take, I became very, you, oh, sorry, sorry you, you become sort of like a YouTuber that's trying to teach these beauty <laughs> tutorials, but you're actually teaching security information. Uh, yeah, like, um, yeah, so I'll talk about um, the last one I did was um, commissioned by the House Electronic Kunst in Basel, but it was a doing... Um, a cat eye, which is like this eyeliner. I don't even know how to explain it because I don't wear makeup very well, but it's like, <laughs> it's an eyeliner thing that you do where it has this like wingtip on the outside of your eyelid. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty um, familiar, I think. But it was like, so my, the video starts with me trying to teach you how to make a cat eye using this tape, which is like this hack I found on YouTube. But then it goes into Zoom and why Zoom isn't encrypted and sort of what into encryption means, what is transport encryption, like what are the alternatives, what, you know, why it should be open source. And it covers like as much as I can in two, two to three minutes while still trying to um teach you how to apply makeup like <laughs> badly but i'm gonna also use this eyeliner it's called thin essence eyeliner pen color is social distancing is not an option when you're incarcerated so people have been sending me a lot of dms lately about what zoom is using it's not encrypted and what does that even mean basically zoom is using something called tls which is transport encryption put this in basic bitch terms don't use zoom to send dick pics i repeat no dicks on zoom at some point i think people get the point of it being like okay she's trying to do a makeup tutorial obviously that's actually not what it is but when you look at all the metadata that i have um on the videos it's all like uh, eyeliner 101, like Maybelline, L'Oreal, like super or whatever, better than sex mascara. So I try to kind of embed them within the beauty blogger culture and bring in like uh, another group of people, again, who wouldn't necessarily be maybe aware of why they should care about their information or why they should care about the way they do things and sort of um, hopefully bring in like the next generation of women and girls and queers and trans people and drag queens to sort of like raise an awareness through, I think, a common language. Have people responded <laughs> to those videos, like either that they were upset that they couldn't figure out how to do a cat eye or that they learned something completely new? Um, so I kind of started the videos because I had Okay, so I started watching uh, beauty vlogger videos because I don't wear any makeup. I'm horrible at applying makeup. And it was like, what can I do that's the opposite of politics right now and just to chill at night? And I started watching drag queen uh, makeup tutorials. And first of all, they're insane. They're so complex. They're amazing, amazing artists. 
But then I thought, okay, there's this whole like world of makeup tutorial, beauty blogger people who share their lives on YouTube. And I became really like, not obsessed with it, but I watched them quite regularly for someone who like doesn't actually really wear any of it. <laughs> um, and so I thought that there was something interesting there between like, you know, makeup is about exposing certain things or elevating certain things. For example, like drawing attention to your eyes, drawing attention to your lips or like completely hiding things, which mm -hmm. is like hiding a zit, uh, covering up your under eyes, like making your nose look bigger, making it look smaller. And I think in a weird way, I found this parallel to um, information and operation security and sort of the OPSEC, InfoSec communities about um, how do you have visible what you want to have visible and how do you, um, you know, hide what you want to hide and sort of thinking that, okay, so if I see this parallel, there's got to be other people that will see this parallel and then putting that out there um, and not necessarily expecting a response, but I've gotten very positive responses. Like a lot of times people tell me they love videos, they want more of them. People will send me things like, can you please cover this topic next? Or, <laughs> and unfortunately it's never like, can you show us how to contour? It's usually like, okay, I haven't figured out PGP. Can you please right. like, do one PGP? And I keep hoping like I'll get an actual makeup request, but I haven't yet. <laughs> so if you're hearing this now, go find the makeup tutorials and make a makeup request. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you actually script these out or are they sort of stream of consciousness as you're making the video? Um, They're totally stream of conscious. So like... Could you do I one for us right now? <laughs> not to put you on the spot could you give us like an example of the tone or is that too much to i don't want to you know um, we didn't sure. talk about so, this before oh i haven't i haven't like thought about it that much i mean i guess i premeditate it a little bit like i'll say okay so someone wants me to talk about why um open source and cryptology is important and why like crypto should be open source so i'll talk about First of all, I always bring Chad into the conversation. And for those of you who don't know, Chad is like the most middle, like midtown, like normcore dude. <laughs> so Chad's always my scapegoats. It's always like somehow Chad and like white male tears. It's like, okay, how can I bring Chad into this conversation? So he's like an overriding, the Chad is the overriding theme in my videos. And I unfortunately have a really good friend from high school whose name was Chad. So I'm always like, hoping he doesn't find the videos <laughs> and think it's about him. <laughs> um, but, but they're sort of parodies. It's like, I'll talk about um, threat modeling and I'll say, you know, like it's not, threat modeling isn't, um, so when you look at threat modeling, for example, it will be something like, typically when you look up a crypto tutorial, threat modeling will be like, well, you've got to watch out for the NSA. You've got to watch out for the government. Like you need to watch out for Russia. But I think for a lot of people who are younger, especially for women, it's like, threat modeling isn't Russia. It's like threat modeling's your ex-boyfriend. Mm -hmm. It's your old roommate. It's like that crazy dude that you met on Tinder. It's sort of looking at it from a perspective that is unique to your own situation, which I think is hard to extrapolate when you're in these like highly technical documents, right? It's all like, well, I don't really care about the NSA. Like I don't have weird things that I'm hiding that are leaked from the CIA or whatever. It's sort of like bringing it to a more normal level in quotes <laughs> yeah that's that's amazing i want to we definitely should post a link to these so that people can check them out after that episode too let's before we go i want to bring up one more project relationship status it's one of more uh yep. more recent project but it seems yep. like there's parallels sort of to these youtube videos can you describe what these pieces are yeah so relationship status is a collaboration that i have done with a photographer who's based out of amsterdam uh alia hernando um and we're kind of using self-portraiture as a means of translating like the private to public and so in a way i think it's very much 
paralleled, actually, now that you bring it up, it's very much paralleled to the videos because it's about this private to public female experience. And sort of, I think being in people's homes, one of the ways that I notice, you know, what the person is, what they're about is typically like those artifacts of things that are on their dressers or, you know, when you go into the bathroom and it's like, what kind of soap is there? Do they have a dish of earrings? Is there a dish of rings? Like, do they have um, weed growing in the bathroom? <laughs> like that kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, um, with everything going on, especially again, like right now with COVID, seeing this disparity between who has the privileges of access to specifically health insurance and who does not, and sort of these alchemies of like, specifically in the relationship status, we have things like crystals and diet potions and prescription drugs and sedatives and weed and sort of things that I think equate in this more contemporary form of like thoughts and prayers. It's things that you don't necessarily know if they're going to work, but you're going to try them anyways, because you may not have health insurance or you may not have the privilege of sick leave. Hmm. And I think the inner, I think also it's like representing the fantasy of the internet world and these like highly curated, um, is it, it's called airbrush or FaceTime or something. This, this is going to like totally make me sound old. Whatever this airbrush <laughs> app is that all these people use. Right. Like the face filter app. Yeah, face filter apps. Yeah. It's like all these things where, you know, I have so many friends that at some point I realized so many of them were using it. And I was like, wait, wait, you mean everyone's doing this? Like, I should, should I be doing this? Because now suddenly I'm realizing like everyone else is perfectly photoshopped. Maybe I should be photoshopped and sort of this like conundrum of creating the fantasy where it's like overriding the reality to the extent that it starts to replace kind of you to this like, quote unquote, ideal version. Hmm. Um, it's interesting that we're using technology as a tool for beauty, right? And, and the idea of digital right. makeup in a very similar way. Right, uh, right. Huh. Yeah, the digital makeup thing. And then kind of like that goes into the whole beauty industry and like fillers and um, cosmetic surgeries. And I've actually like more recently been really obsessed with this notion of like trying to figure out if I know if there's any reports or coverage of like how much um, facial plastic surgery or cosmetic surgery a person has to get in order to actually not be identified. For example, like on Facebook, um, when I had a Facebook account, uh, whenever I uploaded a picture, it would like recognize who I was. And it started maybe making me wonder like at how, how like, you know, abstract do I have to get my face in order for it to be not recognized as me? Hmm. And I've always wondered if there's anyone out there who does body modifications or that sort of stuff that has actually tried that out. It's something I've been very fascinated with and i've unfortunately found zero information about it <laughs> is that a project that you're thinking of taking on um i don't know if i have the guts because i i'm not sure i i haven't come to terms with how i feel about plastic surgery yet but i would consider doing it maybe at some point in my life um but i've definitely been doing the research in terms of find trying to figure out if there are other people who have gone sort of to extreme measures to obfuscate their previous identities or their current identities and sort of what that how do you define identity, I think is a really interesting concept right now, especially with all of that computer vision and AI stuff going on to kind of identify people, be it on the streets or online. Yeah, I think looking at I'm looking at some of your relationship status paintings right now. Um, and it's interesting that you brought up COVID too, because we are seeing these glimpses into people's lives, you know, even the things right. that people forget to remove from the background in their Zoom calls, um, mm -hmm. or that they intentionally place in the background of their Zoom calls. Um, and these mm -hmm. portraits are really fascinating to me just because, you know, you have left in a bunch of these objects, these sort of detritus of everyday life around 
these very carefully manicured flowers. Um, right, right. And, and I, I'm just wondering about that. Like, how did you stage some of these paintings? Like, did you come up with these specific items according to these flowers? Was there an image that popped in? And I also noticed that there's figures sort of looming in the backgrounds or in the yeah. mirrors. Of the, of so the- all of, yeah, so a kind of cool Easter egg about the relationships out of series is like each image has us, she and I in the image somewhere. So like with the, with the New York image, there's a picture where it's like our kind of from our knees down. And then I think with the London, there's a kind of a darker image. There's like a, a strip of photos. One of them has us on a phone um, kind of doing a selfie. And then the other one is like this large French mirror where we're standing sort of in various underwear or underwear garments um, as sort of a like contemporary. Again, it's like, how do you show yourself in contemporary spaces? And a lot of that is about sort of the selfie or like the unselfie. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you show your identity through objects? So so with those pieces, like we tried to make them site specific in the sense that um, with the New York one, we were looking, we did a lot of research into flowers and it was like, what kind of flowers are people buying right now in New York? Like, what are the florists making? It was like a lot of things with feathers and these sort of really bright reds and pastel pinks and very like pop kind of culture. And then when we looked into doing the one in London, it was like, okay, it's peonies, it's smoky. Um, it's a lot more really dark purples and Paris. I had happened to be in Paris a few weeks before again. I'm not there that much, but it just keeps coming up <laughs> in this discussion. Um, and there was all these like dried grasses when I went into the stores, like every single store I went into, there was these huge, you know, bouquets with all these dried grasses. So we were like, okay, dried grasses are happening in Paris. And we were trying to like get the moment of each place with the piece for LA. It was like, a lot of cactuses and crystals and sort of like moon juices and these like herbal remedies and sushi and raw foods. And so we were trying to like draw, I think those references into each piece um, and kind of each site specific work was like, how do we exude like our lives in Paris? How do we exude Mm -hmm. what we do in New York? You know, what is our, what is our lifestyle look like in London? Because we're both constantly traveling. Um, She does a lot of, fashion shoots and then me doing a lot of exhibitions and artist lectures and talks. It's like, what is those each spaces we have very different identities in depending on where it is and what we're doing and sort of like extrapolating that into a piece of work. And so that was really um, one of the themes, I guess, of many of that. Of the and these are your objects in the paintings too then? Yeah. So um, yeah, actually everything is our objects like down to um, which Dunkin Donut. I buy and like the glitter nail polish that I wear when I want to wear glitter nail polish and um, the Xanax and the sunglasses. So, so it was all sort of stuff that was either ours. Um, in a few cases, it was like stuff that was our friends. So that was stuff that they had collected um, with the LA piece. There's like all the smoke and some of it's her incense. Some of it's like some Palo Santo I got in Peru. And so we were trying to like bring ourselves into it as much as we were bringing some close friends um some of it with permission because a lot of it like it will have their names on the prescriptions or something so we wanted to make sure that it was okay before mm-hmm. we put it onto it like a, a larger scale piece but yeah it's pretty much how we feel that we're represented in, in those spaces or or if it's not us it's like our friends who are in those spaces that's fantastic yeah they're really beautiful works so we'll post a, hopefully an image of that too <laughs> Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of all the different characters you're playing within your work too. I feel like there's mm-hmm. from the beauty uh, blogger to the, the, even the, some of the drones, we didn't talk about the drone paintings, but that's another mm-hmm. piece that you should go up and, and check out online. Um, do you feel, I'm kind of curious about that. Do you feel like you're playing mm-hmm. different roles with each work or is it always sort of, uh, Addy, like in every piece? 
I mean, I think it's sort of, I mean, I, I, as much as I've tried to fight that, I think art always eventually ends up being about you in some situation mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's like free therapy or it's a reflection of something you're going through. And so, I mean, even with the drone works, it was like, I was an, I was a fellow at IBM. I had just graduated from grad school. I wanted to sort of play with painting, but I didn't have any formal education in with it. I didn't want to spend the money on the materials. And it was like, there was a guy, um, Randy, who was doing all this stuff with drones and like toys. And he happened to just have them laying around the R&D space in IBM. And I was like, can I have some of your broken drones? I'm just going to try seeing what happens if I use these mm-hmm. <laughs> as a paintbrush. Like it just felt very like an obvious thing to try to play with in terms of like getting paint to apply onto a, onto a canvas. And so for me, that was sort of like it was just weirdly site specific. I think every work is sort of site specific for me, but it was like, this is what I have available and I want to play with painting. Like, how do I do that? How do I get, you know, how do I get my, the extension of my arm? Sorry, my kids are screaming. (laughs) How do you get the extension of, of my arm onto a canvas? And I think, you know, it's always been like a new technology or new tool and sort of in this case, it just happens to be a drone. Right. (laughs) All right. So before we go, uh, we have like a really fast rapid fire question session here for you. (laughs) These are questions that are not necessarily about your work, but more about you. Just the first thing that pops into your mind. Uh, So here we go. What are three devices you can't live without? Um, My phone, my oblique strategies deck and uh, (laughs) some kind of like robot back massaging device. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's good. Can I say a vape pen? Or yeah. Is it not legal? Well, that, My weed vape pen. Right now. I don't think like, we're that <laughs> concerned with the uh, legality here in this podcast, especially not okay, at this the moment. Weed, the, I'd have to say the the weed vape pen has had a strong run the last few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get another one. Uh, all right. Yeah. Uh, if you could, okay, this is a weird question. Why did I put this in here? If you could live after death embodied in a machine, would you? Sure. And and why? <laughs> um, because I'd be a machine, so people wouldn't like expect anything of me. Which machine would you want to be in? Um, I'd probably want to be in a computer because I feel like that's what people use the most. And it would kind of like allow me to see what was constantly going on via their webcams. So it's sort of like a, a lawnmower man situation. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just like first thing that came to mind. Um, what was, could you tell us an awkward story? Um, how awkward do you want to know? Whatever pops okay, in your mind. That, it's the first thing that came to mind, right? So, um, I was in Morocco in December, end of December or November or sometime, like in recently, the last one that just happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I was surfing there. I go surfing there. I, I would go surfing there a lot because it's very cheap from Europe. So I went there and um, I was surfing one day and like I started to get a stomach ache. I should also add that like in Morocco, you have to wear wetsuits because it's pretty cold. And um I get a stomach. I was like, this is weird. Okay, I'm just going to keep surfing. Then I was like, I don't feel so well. I'm going to go out onto the beach. And um, I just started basically like crapping myself (laughs) in my wetsuit. (laughs) Oh, no. And then it's like, you know, when you get really sick and you suddenly realize like it's coming out of all ends and there is nothing I can do about it. So I'm like on this Moroccan beach with all these like very respectable like conservative muslim men and i'm literally just like vomiting and i don't know if it was coming out of my wetsuit but it was definitely like apparent to me that it was there how do you recover from Um, that like where does that rest of that day go um well okay so funny enough i was there with my friend who happened she happens to be a a medical professional no that's and she got out of the water and she just said to me like you don't look so good like i i don't know is something 
are you okay? And I was like, no, I think I'm not well, but I'm just going to sleep on me. She's like, no, I can tell we've got to get you back to the Riyadh. Like you need to be in bed. I'm, I'm actually really worried. You look really sick. And then like we get in the car. I mean, I, you, you don't recover, especially because yeah. like she was my roommate. It's like, there's <laughs> nothing you can do in that situation. <laughs> Other than just like apologize and like hope that there's somewhere else she can use to go to the bathroom because I was so sick for like two days and it really, it really broke me as like feeling, (laughs) feeling like a confident adult was like having, having to basically, I don't know if I can say bad words, but it's like basically when you shed yourself in a wetsuit, it's like it can only get better from there. (laughs) These are the stories that make our podcast different, I think. The most art (laughs) podcast. Thank you. I don't think anyone knows this story but her. This is great. (laughs) Uh, Maybe you can use it in a future work somehow. I don't know. Something with wetsuits uh, and people will understand. Um, Last question. Do you have a favorite film? Um... Uh, this is so cliche. I would say anything by Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. um, like Royal Tenenbaums comes to mind. Uh, Fight Club comes to mind. American Beauty comes to mind, which was not Wes Anderson nor his Fight Club. But those are sort of my genre is like movies that um, I feel like if I did a lot of drugs, I would understand. It's sort of like dystopian than- suburbia movies. It seems yeah, like. like dystopian suburbia stuff, I think, yeah. is really interesting. Kind of stuff that gets beyond like the surface layer of, of perfect people and perfect cultures is really my definitely my vibe. Awesome. <laughs> Addie, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, how do we yeah. find your work online? Where's the best place to find you? Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, where just w-h-e-r-e-s-a-d-d-i-e i post a lot of kind of in progress stuff there or my website which is places i've never been.com um I, lo- I do a lot of smack talking on twitter which is the same address or name as um my instagram <laughs> awesome all right well we'll we'll post links to all of those in our uh statement too on the bottom of this page awesome. all right cool. Addie, have a good night i know it's nighttime there uh, thanks again for yeah. joining us <laughs> and i'll talk to you next week yeah thanks so much gabe Thanks for listening to another episode of State of the Art. I'm Gabe BC. Uh, You can always follow me at Gabe BC. Uh, If you have any ideas or suggestions or comments you want to relay to us, you can send me an email at Gabe at thestateoftheart.org. We're happy to read some questions on the air or uh, communicate directly with you through social media at State of the Art on Twitter and Instagram. State of the Art is an at-art production originally created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, Wesson Stevens is our audio engineer extraordinaire and Vanessa Wilson is our producer. And I hope that they're all doing well and uh, I've been communicating with them a little bit and they seem like they're safe and healthy. And I hope our audience is also uh, doing well and staying indoors and being safe. So we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks.